This morning taken from Mark 11. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say, from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say, from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's good to be with you. If you're newer to Trinity, I might not look familiar. My name is Nick Polico, and I'm an associate pastor here, but I actually serve at Redemption Church, which is in Palos Heights, just down the road about 15 miles, which is an extension of Trinity, uh, working towards being our own independent congregation one day, but for now, um, simply a, an extension of you, and occasionally I get to come up here to preach before quickly zipping down to Palos to to get there in time to preach as well. So we're continuing our, uh, our journey along with Jesus in his final days before the crucifixion in Jerusalem. These are a bunch of intense accounts filled with suspense and conflict, uh, but they have a lot to show us about our own hearts and how we relate to God. Let's ask for his blessing as we, as we turn to his word. Lord, we are reading this ancient account of strange events that happen in a temple thousands and thousands of miles away from here. 
And yet this is your word which speaks to us now, here in the 21st century, sitting in suburban Chicago land. And so we pray that you would show us yourself and help us to know you better through this passage of Scripture. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So last week, if you were here, Pastor Jeff preached on the famous account of Jesus going into the temple where there was an extraordinary amount of activity, the temple in Jerusalem, and bringing a massive disruption to what was happening. Overturning the tables of the money changers who were selling animals that could then be used for sacrifices. Driving people out with a whip and declaring this house is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations and you've made it a den of robbers. So now we're in this passage, understandably, really, the religious leaders are saying, by what authority do you have to march in here and to turn things upside down? Imagine if somebody walked in and just undid the communion table and, you know, we might say, who, who are you? Are you even ordained in the Presbyterian Church of America to come in here and, you know, and I have been thinking a good deal just kind of in my own life about this theme of disruption. What I mean by that is when God disrupts something in the life of his church, in the life of his people, in our lives personally, bring, when he brings disruption, when he brings upending, in order to reorient us, in order to, 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 to bring us out of a hazardous way of relating to him so that we can begin to relate to him in a way that is life-giving. And so to give a sense of what I mean in a really practical sense by the sort of disruption he might bring, I want to share with you something I heard on a podcast recently from the Allender Center. The Allender Center is uh, a place in Seattle started by a man named Dan Allender, who's a therapist and a Christian. And in one of his podcasts, he talks about what he calls the four quadrants of marriage. Actually, it's four or five podcasts to get through the four quadrants. And basically, he describes the four marriage quadrants as four different ways that our marriages can be dysfunctional. And he would, he would argue, I think, that every single one of us has a tendency, if those of us who are married, to live in one quadrant or another. But some folks live really deeply into one of those quadrants and so have a particularly hard time. And he describes the, the first marriage quadrant as consisting of a marriage in which the husband and the wife are deeply committed to one another. They're very reliable, faithful, loyal people. There is very little drama in their relationship. But instead of being a relationship of of desire and of curiosity and of increasing intimacy, including emotional intimacy, it's just sort of a benign coexistence. These are people who never cause trouble in the church. They're great neighbors. They're wonderful, delightful people, but their relationship is just sort of this surfacey, benign coexistence. And so beneath the surface, there are all sorts of wounds that never become healed, all sorts of, of longings and hopes that just wither and die slowly. And he would say this sort of benign coexistence is a reflection of how these people tend to relate to God as well. They're not rebellious people, but there's just not any real deep engagement with God, no real delight in him or or deep life of repentance and transformation. And what Allender says is that the pattern he's observed is 
these folks will never come for counseling until one of their children goes off the deep end. And he says, the reason this happens is because one of the kids who tends to maybe be a really deep thinker begins to become really angry because they think, what is the matter with you? Life is hard and life is complicated. And I have all these sorrows and pains and questions and I feel like I have nowhere to go with them because everybody is just cruising through life like it's nothing but a Norman Rockwell painting. And so the kid flies off the deep end and to try to figure out what to do with the kid, they come in for therapy. And what Allender tries to gently and helpfully, uh, 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 gradually get them to see is that the disruption that your child is bringing because of their anger is actually, your main problem is not that your child is reacting this way. This is disrupting this, this lifeless way of relating to one another and to God that you have been living in perhaps for, for decades. And so the reason I share this just as an example is to invite us to reflect on where God might be bringing disruption in our life, maybe in our church's life. Where is there disruption? And the, the way you know that maybe he's bringing disruption is if you start to ask the sort of question that the religious leaders in this passage ask. By whose authority are you doing these things? Lord, why are you treating me this way? Who gives you the right to treat me this way? That's when you know that perhaps there is some sort of disruption. So in what area of your life? It might not even be something directly related to you. It might be because something you're seeing in somebody else who you care about. You're saying, Lord, why are you treating them that way? Who are you to do this to them? And so what we want to look at today from this text is, is the question of how do we respond to God when he brings disruption into our life, such that we're asking, why? By what authority? Why are you treating me this way? And the first thing that this passage invites us to do in response to God when he brings disruption is to ask him sincere questions. To ask him sincere questions. The reason I say this is because the religious leaders in this passage bring to Jesus an insincere question. And in so doing, in, in, not, in, in having their insincere question frustrated, we are sort of tacitly invited, I would say, to bring sincere questions to the Lord. So they have understandably, the question on the face of it is pretty reasonable. Again, Jesus has come into the temple. He has turned things upside down. He has brought great disruption. And so we read in verse 27 that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or to put it into more contemporary and eloquent parlance, who made you the boss of me? And Jesus answers their question with a question saying, well, I will ask you one question. You answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And the reason Jesus answers their question with a question is to show that their question is not actually a question. It's a statement. They're not sincerely coming to him and saying, we want to understand why are you doing this and by what authority? And they're not actually willing to engage with the answer. Their question is really a statement saying, you do not have the authority to do these things. And so Jesus traps them with the question saying, was the baptism of John from heaven or from 
man. And if you're familiar with the gospel story, John the baptizer had come in fulfillment of promises made long ago in the Old Testament scriptures that someone would come to prepare the way of the Lord himself. And so he had come with a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins so that when the Lord himself came in the person of Jesus, the people would be ready to receive him. And many had received the baptism of John. And so the religious leaders are sort of stuck because if they admit the truth, well, it was from heaven. The baptism of John was from heaven. Then they've got their answers to where Jesus gets his authority to do what he's doing from God himself. But if they say no, they're worried about the people revolting, so they simply say, we don't know. We take a mulligan. I think there's probably a lot of just sort of like general wisdom in, in seeing how Jesus responds. I think of a lot of the political conversations we get into where we start asking each other questions and we're not actually seeking answers from one another or trying to understand a person who's different. We're just trying to win and we should probably just say, let's just stop. But Jesus shows through the telling of this parable that the reason they don't believe that he has authority or that they're not willing to accept the sort of authority he has, it's not because they haven't received sufficient information. It's because they have, a, uh, they have hearts that are in opposition to God. That's the, the point of this parable of the vineyard. Jesus uses this imagery that appears in multiple places in the Old Testament where Israel is compared to a vineyard that God planted but, so that he could reap delightful fruit from it, but it was fruitless because the people rejected their God and descended into all sorts of injustice and, and hatred of, of one another. And so, as the story of the Old Testament unfolds, God sends prophets to speak his word to the people, to seek to turn them back to their God, but they persecute those prophets, sometimes even killing them. And Jesus is saying, now one is among you who is not merely a prophet, but who is the beloved son himself, and you are going to drag that beloved son out of the vineyard just as Jesus would be crucified outside of the city and kill him. It is because your hearts are opposed to God that you don't receive my action among you, not because you've been given insufficient information. And you are actually reenacting the pattern that you religious leaders know so well in your Bible by which your fathers have persecuted God's messengers. And now you are doing the same to me. So, what are we supposed to do? What does it look like to actually bring a, a sincere question to God, to Jesus, when he brings disruption into our life? Because it, it does not mean that we never wrestle with him. It doesn't mean that we're never upset. It doesn't mean that we never say, why? Some of you have probably read the famous book that C.S. Lewis wrote called A Grief Observed. If you're not familiar with it, C.S. Lewis lost his wife, Joy, to a, a grueling battle with cancer. And A Grief Observed is essentially a memoir about his spiritual agony wrestling with God in the wake of her death. And he, he, he essentially shares that his, his experience of God in the wake of her death was, was one not where he was being cared for and comforted by God, but he felt like God was, was spiteful. He talks about how there were these false assurances that he and his wife had received where the doctors actually thought she was getting better, 
thought she was in remission. There would be scans or clear. You know, the technology wasn't as good back in the 50s. And there was sort of this false hope, and then she would become sick again, and then she died. And Lewis felt as though God had just been toying with him. And he says near the beginning of the book, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. So what did he do when this disruption came into his life? What he did, what Lewis did, was he steered right into the questions. And he went to God, sincerely laying his heart bare, sincerely bringing questions, but actually looking for answers, not using his questions as an excuse to ignore answers, but as that which would propel him towards answers. And he wrestled with God, just like Jacob wrestling with the angel, saying, I will not go till you bless me. Just like Job laying his case before the Lord and saying, what on earth have I done to deserve all of this calamity? And so I want to say to all of us, but I want especially to uh, our young people among us, you know, if you were in middle school, high school, college, and you've been you know, raised in the church and you've heard the stories of, of Jesus your whole life, there will be a time, and perhaps it's already upon you, but a time will come when you will experience some sort of grueling trial or some set of agonizing questions where you wonder maybe something just like Lewis did. Is this what God is really like? You know, it could be because of some horrible trauma that happens to you. It could be because you, just, you go to college and you're exposed to other people with other ideas and you don't know what to think and how to integrate what you're learning with what you were raised to believe. And I just want to encourage you, when this happens, ask sincere questions. Which means, be willing to ask them. Maintaining your faith, maintaining the heritage that's been passed on to you, doesn't mean you have to ignore these things. It doesn't mean you have to pretend that your heart is not in turmoil when it is. Ask them, but ask questions sincerely. You know, when you are faced with some sort of disturbing questions about God, don't use those questions as an excuse to ignore the answers that might be there and to avoid seeking those answers. Use them as the reason that you seek answers more passionately and deeply than you ever have in the past. Ask sincere questions. That is a proper way to respond to Jesus when he comes and disrupts our life. Ask sincere questions. Another thing we are encouraged to do in this passage is to reassess what we are spending our lives building. Reassess what we're building. Every single one of us is engaged in, in a building project of some sort. In your family, in your work, in the things you, you love, your hobbies, the things you pursue. All of us are trying to build something that will give us meaning and happiness and fulfillment and, and, and whatnot. We're all builders. We're trying to build life. And when Jesus brings disruption to us, it's an opportunity 
to reassess what we're building and how we're building it. Jesus says to the, his audience here, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is a quote from Psalm 18 that scholars will say would have actually been sung pretty regularly during this particular feast, this time that the Jews were having together. And so as he says to religious leaders who probably had the Psalms memorized word for word and knew the Bible better than any of us in this room, hands down, have you not read the Scripture? <laughs> you know, that's, 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 that's like saying to a, a college PhD in mathematics, have you not seen a multiplication table, like through tens? Like, they knew this inside and out. They may have been singing it minutes before this encounter with Jesus, for all we knew. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is saying that he's, he's using imagery that again appears multiple times in the Old Testament of, of the Lord putting a stone down, which will become the basis for what he is going to build, this, this new temple, this people, this kingdom, but over which his enemies will stumble or under which they will be broken. We don't have time to go there, but in the second chapter of the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar sees has this dream of this bright, frightening figure, which is this great dreadful thing made out of various golds and, and precious metals and powerful metals mostly. And then there's a rock that comes and breaks it to bits so that it's nothing but chaff. And the prophet Daniel interprets this as being a picture of God's kingdom coming and breaking every kingdom that's opposed to it. And what Jesus is essentially saying to the religious leaders who are worshiping the God of the Old Testament celebrating the feast that he instituted, he's saying you are building one of those kingdoms that God's kingdom is going to come and obliterate. This is, this is astonishing because everything they were doing on the, on the outside was exactly what they should have been doing. Worshiping in the temple, preparing for the Passover. And Jesus is saying, whatever you think you're building... It is not the kingdom of God. We have had in the United States, but even recently, even here in Chicago, multiple different instances in which really prominent pastors have lost their ministries because it's come to light that their leadership was abusive. And that maybe what they were building, at least in part, was not God's kingdom but something of their own where they wanted to rule. Now, I'm not passing final judgment on these men, and Lord knows I have so many sins that make me think, who are you to preach, Nick? <laughs> and I'm not suggesting that the kingdom is not at all advanced through these ministries or, or these people. But the reason I bring this up is because so many people, and rightfully so, are troubled and disillusioned when these things happen when it's brought to light that leaders in the church were building their own kingdom, perhaps, not the kingdom of God. And it causes people to walk away from the church. And what I want to say, maybe again, even to the young people in the room, is do not be surprised. That's one of those questions, those sincere questions that might happen. How can I believe in Jesus when his church sometimes has leaders that have this sort of fall? There's an answer. 
There are leaders among God's people, God help me, who are seeking to build their own kingdom and not that of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus isn't caught off guard by this, and he confronts them. So when there's disruption, it's good for us to reassess what we are building. But the final thing I want to ask of this passage is, so how do we do this? Because if if the worship that these people were engaging in and the religious activity largely looked pretty good, I mean, there were problems. The court of the Gentiles, as, as Pastor Jeff preached last week, had been filled with money changers so that people from the nations who couldn't come to the inner parts of the temple couldn't, couldn't um, participate. But that might have been a subtle problem that was hard to discern because the activity itself, we're just selling, activ- we're just selling animals for the sacrifices. So it, might have, it was a problem, but it might have not been glaringly obvious. And really, these people were not, they were not engaged in some sort of wild, immoral living. They were worshiping God. So how can we sort of, how can we assess what we are building and whether or not it's our kingdom or a, a, a being used by God to build his kingdom? And it really has to do with a posture of the heart that from reading this passage, I think we could describe as, this is sort of wordy sounding, but repentant dependence. Repentant dependence. The dependence aspect of this I'm taking from Psalm 118, which is where this quote about the stone that the builders rejected becoming the cornerstone that God uses to build his temple. That is a psalm, if you go and read the entire psalm, that is all about celebrating that we are utterly dependent on the Lord, but he is our help and our deliverer. The psalm reads in part, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. So there's a a dependence on the Lord that in everything we do in our own life and the life of our church that, that we're utterly depending on Him. And if we're not, then it's not His kingdom we're building but ours. But there's more we have to say because these folks would have sung this psalm. And if we had said to them, you have to depend on the Lord, they would have said, amen, of course. Don't you hear us praying? Save us, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And that is why I think we have to not simply depend on the Lord, but have this repentant dependence on the Lord. What I mean by this is there's a difference between relying on somebody to save you, the way you would rely on, say, a politician, or or maybe even better, like a superhero, and the way you rely on a Savior. You know, think of just sort of in terms of what repentance is. What we read even in the Shorter Catechism earlier, that Christ executes his office of a king by subduing us to himself. Nobody calls out to Superman for deliverance with the understanding that Superman is going to subdue us to himself so that we are personally devoted to him and dependent on his grace. It's just that he's strong, so we say, please, come rescue. Come rescue us. It has to be repentant dependence. Repentance, remember, was at the core of the baptism of John, which these leaders had apparently rejected. Remember, John had come preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. These folks 
who are questioning Jesus had not gone for that baptism of repentance. Which means that they were relating to God as those who depended on Him. They wanted Him to come rescue Israel from their oppressors. But they weren't coming with hearts that were repentant toward God. Meaning they weren't coming sort of in the words of the old hymns, like all to Jesus I surrender, nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. And they were living earlier in the story that couldn't have understood the cross yet, but they weren't coming with that sort of heart disposition, recognizing before God and His holiness and His goodness, we are utterly undeserving, utterly weak and sinful on our own, and we come seeking forgiveness and mercy, and we don't simply want our lives outwardly to conform to religious standards, but at the very level of the heart, we want God to renovate us completely so that our submission to God is not just an outward thing, but it is a, something that encapsulates our entire being as we come before Him saying, everything about us needs to be brought in submission to you. Everything about us needs renovation and needs renewal. It's a, it's a repentant dependence based upon the cross of Christ. And the cross is here in this passage subtly because Jesus talks about the Son being brought out of the vineyard and killed. The beloved Son. And there's even sort of a little play on words because the word stone is in the stone that the builders rejected. And the word Son, they rhyme together. And in Hebrew, there's a lot of puns and rhyming and things like that. And so Jesus is saying that He is the beloved Son who is also the rock in whom God is going to build his kingdom. And this beloved son is going to be brought out of the vineyard and put to death. And this is going to happen so that even those who have built kingdoms in opposition to God can come with repentance, turning to him for forgiveness of sins and to be reconstituted as a people who now don't build in opposition to God, but are used by God to build his kingdom. So, what is one way that it might look to, to pursue God's kingdom with sort of a, this, this dynamic of repentance, dependence, rather than self-reliance? And one way that I think of that is, it's at least it's really relevant to kind of where I served at my previous church that was an inner-city context. It's very relevant uh, where we are in the south suburbs, and it's relevant, I think, everywhere, especially in our time and place, is this issue of, of race and of racial reconciliation and diversity, which is talked about widely in our culture and increasingly in the church, and there, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of good there. But as I have heard Christians sort of engage with the painful reality that, you know, the racial history of our world and of our culture has caused the church to grow into different branches and has separated groups of people into different neighborhoods and whatnot and have engaged with how do we how do we pursue being with one another there are basically kind of two different ways I've heard this done and one it seems to be filled with the same sort of on the one hand either fear or despair or just ignoring of the problem or on the other hand the sort of like bitterness and even self-righteousness, by self-righteousness I'm referring largely to white people in particular who think they are more woke than the next person, that are sort of common amongst 
much of the people in the world around us as they engage in these discussions. And when I encounter that, I either feel just shame and condemned because of what I haven't been able to do to, to, to accomplish, you know, racial reconciliation, or I might feel a bit puffed up because, yeah, that's right, I understand these things more than those people over there. But there's another way of, of pursuing these conversations that I think demonstrates the sort of repentant dependence. And I, I saw it take shape particularly once at a conference I was at where a, one of our African-American teaching elders in the PCA was speaking to a, a very racially mixed group. And he stood up and he said, friends, Jesus is going to have the church that he wants. He is going to have the church filled with all black and white and brown and every kind of person that he wants. In the end, we stumble around, you said this won't be word for word, and we do our best now to try to embody these things, and we should. We ought to. But brothers and sisters, Jesus is going to do among us what he has promised to do. Now, he wasn't suggesting that we be passive and we drop all these sorts of conversations and we don't work towards these things. But I will tell you, when he spoke that way, I felt like this is a room where I can, I can be safe to have failed in this area. And it's a room where I can be equipped to fail hopefully a bit less. And it's a room where we are all recognizing that it is the cross of Christ that humbles us and gives us hope in these conversations. And I just feel, you know, I felt this sort of at the end of this, this sermon in preparing this, this issue of dependent repentance. I, I felt like I would need either to be far more articulate or to have a great deal more time to feel like I really, like we could really distill this together and crystallize what this means. But I, I just want to encourage you to assess how you are building. How you are building your life, your family, your work life, our church life? And is it characterized by dependence on God and humble repentance and reliance on Him? It's good to reassess what we're building when Jesus brings disruption. And it's good and it's important to bring to Him our sincere questions when He brings us disruption. He can handle them. And He is, he is glad when He brings disruption into our life when we seek him with sincere questions, when we come to him with repentance, when we come to him with dependence, even if we do so from as dark a place as C.S. Lewis spoke from, where we are, fear, will we ever be able to trust God again? He is, he is willing to be gentle and to lead us and to commission us to continue to be co-laborers building his kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that during this season as we prepare to celebrate in a particularly focused way the the passion of our Lord, His death, and the resurrection. And as we engage in a time of focusing on the cross and and on repentance, we, we thank you that you do come to us in your word and you do bring disruption because if you did not, we would just easily coast in dysfunctional ways of relating to you that keep us distant. And so even though it is a frightening thing to pray, a very frightening thing to pray, we want to ask you to help us to embrace the grace of disruption in our life. 
and to respond by, by steering into you and pursuing you harder rather than running. Help us to that end, we pray. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. And now we will continue, friends, to take the opportunity to bring our particular confession of sin before the Lord. We will uh, use the written confession that is printed in our bulletin together. In the midst of that, there's a time for silent confession where you can bring before God anything that's on your heart. But let's pray together. Our Lord and King, we confess that in our hearts, in our minds, and with our hands, we have disobeyed you. We have failed to give you the honor and worship that you deserve as our King and as our God. We have bowed before idols of our own making and served the creature rather than the Creator. Deliver us, O Lord, and forgive us only by the blood and merits of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you forever and ever. Amen. Friends, please lift your heads and hear this good news of God's gracious disposition toward you in Jesus from Psalm 103, verses 8 to 13. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. Through Jesus Christ, our King, friends, our sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.